I mean, I already had these political ideas that even, you know, predated my entrance into the food system studies, but I didn't really get a sense of what it was like for the people who were actually doing that work. I'd never made a movie before in my life. I just thought, oh, this will be a great vehicle to talk about these issues and to create media about it, but then also for myself to learn. It was sort of a research project. And one of my thoughts was, I'm not going to get a lot of small farmers to talk to me unless I say it's for a movie. <laughs> it was pretty much a way of getting people to talk to me. And my questions for them were largely about, you know, what is a sustainable food system? What defines it to you? And what is preventing it from existing? You know, so much of the narrative at that point, the 2007, 2008, was really about the buying, voting with your fork and this notion of, you know, if we just support these small scale family farmers, organic farmers, whatever you want to call them, uh, that that's the best way we can ensure that they expand and flourish. But then talking to a lot of these farmers, even if they were doing okay, we, you come up against the reality that it's actually a systemic or a structural constraint, not, not an individual one and not one that's caused by a lack of purchase interest. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. On the second season, we bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people who work with food in incredible ways. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com, where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. This just in from Antonio. He has a new project. It's a book called An Anti-Dogmatist's Guide to Food Systems and How to Change Them. He'll be writing this book blog post by blog post, so you can read along as he writes the book. Check it out at antidogmatist.com. Antonio Roman Alcoa is a food activist, gardener, teacher, and scholar. With a group of friends, he broke into a vacant lot by the freeway in the southern part of San Francisco to start Alamany Farm. He has taught ecological horticulture there and at many other food projects. He managed a food justice project and garden at San Francisco's Potrero Hill Public Housing and organized the San Francisco Urban Agricultural Alliance. He made a movie called In Search of Good Food and worked on forming the California Food Policy Council. He was part of Occupy the Farm. He recently got a master's degree at the Institute for Social Studies at The Hague for research on food sovereignty. He's also a musician and new father, and he lives in San Francisco with his family. Hey, Antonio. Welcome to the show. Hello. So I guess I wanted to start today talking about um, your roots in like DIY culture and, and you know, the beginning of Alamany Farm and maybe how you got started yeah. in working with food. Yeah. What that meant. Yes. Yeah, so I definitely, I would say it's accurate to portray it as, as coming out of the DIY culture because I was um, first a musician and a high school dropout and sort of uh, someone who was interested in pursuing life 
on its own, on my own terms rather than uh, for achieving some sort of uh, career goals or things like that. Um, and so a lot of the projects I was involved with at the time that I got into food were really about creating my own medias or doing zines about, um, you know, creating alternative sort of street culture. There was things that was very much about doing it yourself or as I say, DIO doing it ourselves because a lot of it was also collaborative projects. Um, so my entrance into food was really because I was interested in politics. A lot of the bands I was in, a lot of the projects I was involved in uh, were political in nature. So they might have been about anti-war organizing or here in San Francisco, a lot of anti-gentrification organizing. Um, and food came up as a thing that, you know, it's or become a cliche at this point. But, you know, everyone eats and it's this way that you can engage people in this very tangible way of taking control of some aspect of our lives, which is usually considered sort of outside of our control. Um, and so I was a part of a group of people, young people who were idealistically interested in starting intentional communities, even though most of us didn't have very much money to start such communities. And we didn't necessarily have a lot of practice in working in intentional communities. But we had this ideal of, oh, what if we could start an urban intentional community that was connected to a rural one and have them sort of interpenetrating instead of it being this thing of, oh, going back to the land or being fully urbanized that we could talk about the connections between urban and rural and, and use food as the sort of foundation for discussing politics of sustainability and of, of, you know, equitable systems. And so that was the project that caused us to seek somewhere to practice our collectivity and so we found I, my mom lives up the hill from Alamini Farm. And so we knew of it. I knew, knew of it as a site and it ha had basically been abandoned. Um, and so we thought maybe this would be a good place to start off. And that was how I started that project. I had already at when that time, that? that was 2005, February of 2005 when, was when we started um, actually actively farming there and actively working in the community to sort of decide what what the project should look like. Uh I had already been doing some gardening for a couple years, a year or two before then. So I had been going to this place called the All in Common Garden on 23rd Street. Um, I had a couple of mentors who were very much more sort of hippie or anarchist farmer types. And they were teaching me more the, the tangible skills. And I actually, I, I should step back. I, one thing that was funny is I, I got into the food stuff partly because I was sort of in an apocalyptic mindset and I thought, oh my God, peak oil and all this stuff is happening and we're all going to, you know, the system's going to come crashing down. So I should know how first thought was I should know how to identify wild foods that I could eat at any point. So I started studying all the weeds and things. And then I realized, oh, well, growing food might be a good idea as well. And so that was the step that brought me into these gardening projects. And then Alamany Farm was the first place where it really became something that I was doing as a practice and really, really learning quickly by doing, and then also trying to figure out a way to best share that information, that knowledge with, with other people and to have it be a project that was really open to a lot of people to participate. So that was, yeah, I think that was my, my first entrance into it was, Hey, how can I use food to discuss these larger political issues? And then how can I just sort of create personal resilience by understanding how to food, grow food myself and to create more community that is capable of doing that in case, you know, things go bad or whatever. At this point, I'm, I, I'm less, uh, I have less affinity for the apocalyptic sort of position, but um, it was definitely a motivating force initially. Well, I think we should 
delve into that apocalyptic thing a little bit more because I think that space between hope and despair real, is really a thread that yeah. runs through like a lot of the work that you've done. So you started working with Alamany Farm and then after that, like when did the film project start? Yeah, in? it was, the film was definitely in, in a large sense, my next step because so I thought, okay, people are urban, but we need to gain more control over our food or, or understand it better. Let's start this urban food project. And then I realized there was a limitation to that in terms of understanding the quote unquote food system. And so the movie, I started the project in 2007 when I started researching and figuring out who I could, who I could interview. And I worked with the California, it was originally called the California Food and Justice Coalition. Now it's the Community Food Justice Coalition. Um, I was working with them to figure out, okay, well, could I do like a tour around California and interview people who have to do with many different parts of the food system and not just urban farms, but actually rural farms and also farm worker organizations and also groups working on uh, indigenous fisheries and all this different stuff that was going on around food. And I had this overly ambitious idea that I was going to make eight different movies about eight different themes in the food system. And I never made a movie before in my life. I just thought, oh, this will be a great vehicle uh, to talk about these issues and to create media about it, but then also for myself to learn. It was sort of a research project. Um, and, and one of my thoughts was, I'm not going to get a lot of small farmers to talk to me unless I say it's for a movie. <laughs> it was pretty much a way of getting people to talk to me. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really enlightening experience because it really forced me to think. I mean, I already had these political ideas that even, you know, predated my entrance into the food system studies. Um, but, but I didn't really get a sense of what it was like for the people who were actually doing that work. And my questions for them were largely about, you know, what is a sustainable food system? What defines it to you and what is preventing it from existing? And I think that that was, that was the, the story I tried to tell was about how, you know, so much of the narrative at that point, the 2007, 2008 was really about the buying, voting with your fork and this notion of, you know, if we just support these small scale family farmers, organic farmers, whatever you want to call them. Uh, that that's the best way we can ensure that they expand and flourish. But then talking to a lot of these farmers, even if they were doing okay, we, you come up against the reality that it's actually a systemic or a structural constraint, not not an individual one and not one that's caused by a lack of purchase interest. Um, so that was the story that that movie ended up telling to me. And then that that's what I tried to, to present um, in the final version of it. I just watched it last night. I've seen bits of it before, but I was just really struck um, thinking about that moment for myself and mm -hmm. like what a hopeful time 2007 and 2008 felt for me. Like it felt like there was all this room for imagining that there was this real sweetness in the food movement. But I'm kind of curious, like, what's it like to be part of a conversation over time? Where is that mm -hmm. conversation at now? That's a That's a good question because I feel like, the vote with your fork narrative has not gone away. That's for sure. But at the same time, I think you see things like, uh, what was his name? Josh Fertel, who was at some point the head of Slow Food USA. So Slow Food is known to be all about, you know, it's sort of this elitist thing and it's really about buying the best foods and really enjoying them. And it seems it's always had this image of being very distant from this question of structural power and changing things at a fundamental basis. But Josh Fertel 
himself actually said that line at some point. He said, it's not enough to talk about voting with your four. We need to vote with our votes and we need to vote with our bodies and we need to vote with, you know, as collectivities. We need to think beyond the individual. So I think that there's a certain extent to which that narrative has, has now hit a, a sort of more mainstream within the food movement. Um, but it's also a challenge because, you know, in this culture, things become sort of fetishized or just um, a lot of times things that are counter, what I call countercultural, get absorbed into the dominant culture or get sort of mishmashed into becoming a subculture. It's not necessarily counter to the fundamental uh, problems of the mainstream culture. They just become a thing that you can adopt as part of your own individual sort of experience and culture uh, that represent to you an alternative, but don't necessarily embody that counterness. Um, and that's what I think has happened a lot with food movement. For example, food justice. I feel like when I was starting Alamini Farm with people, the, 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 the peer base that I was working with, a lot of people were really rooted in very radical politics, very anti-capitalist, explicitly anti-capitalist politics, very race aware. You know, a lot of it was about the racial aspects of the food system. And to me, that's what food justice work was about. It was about fundamentally um, saying that it wasn't okay for people to not have access to food. And it's not just about charity. It's about people reclaiming uh, uh, power over the sources of food, whether that's very directly growing food, but also about policies, also about, um, you know, ownership of land and housing, et cetera. So to me, I thought that that food justice was very radical. And now I feel like there's a, been a flourishing of food justice, quote unquote, projects, but many of them might be ultimately just about the food access issue. Some of them really consider themselves food justice because their, their issue is we want to make sure that organic foods get to poor people or, you know, communities of color or something like that. And, and I think that it's not to disparage those projects, but there's that, that process by which things that are, are not okay with the way things are become just a way to tweak at the margins and just a way to sort of excuse. It's not intended to excuse the system as it is, but it's really more about like, oh, we know it's problematic, but our solution doesn't really address those issues. It's really just uh, mitigating the problems. Well, and let's talk about that in terms of, I guess, your trajectory, mm -hmm. right? So you started with this kind of DIY approach and um, a pretty interesting one because you are a San Francisco native yeah. and this was this place that was right by your mom's house. And, you know, you knew people in the neighborhood. It was like, yeah. it was a deeply radical in, in many ways. Um, and it worked, right? And then all of a sudden, it was cool and there was a tension and that was weird. Yeah. Right. Like, and it was, there was all this hope. And then it was like the conversation got a lot deeper mm. for everybody or mm -hmm. people's lives went on and they like went on to become doctors and lawyers and whatever yeah. people do. Um, but for you, it's like meant that you're like mm. spend a lot of time in institutional space, right? Like by working with policy or by yeah. doing these other things. Like what does that mean? Like to, keep bringing hmm. radical politics to that or these values like in places where people could say, Oh, maybe he sold out or yeah. something like that. Hmm. Well, that's, I definitely think it's, it's a line and, and it's hard to advocate. Uh, it's kind of like, it's hard to advocate the right way of going about making change. I, I'm a firm believer that, 
people have either implicit or explicit theories of change about what they should be doing in order to make change. And that those theories of change often conflict between people and they can actually conflict within a person or they can change over time. Um, and I think that it, there's no set standard that you can really apply for one person because um, it's so sort of ideological or, or just based in I mean, I like to think my theory of change is informed by my studies, for example, but I would never presume that because someone else has a different one, uh, that theirs is just automatically incorrect because of my experience and my background. So I guess what I'm saying is in the, in the realm of something like selling out, I think there are clear examples where people do sell out or lose their sort of fundamental values that they held at some point in, 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 in the past, um, but I also think there's a process of transition where people become uh, incorporated into institutions or incorporated into cultures where they cannot act a certain way without losing the the leverage point that they've achieved. And I don't think we should say, oh, that person's work is not valuable anymore because they've quote unquote sold out. I think it's actually a case by case basis. And sometimes, sometimes there needs to be people called out or whatever. And sometimes it's really more just about accepting that there are many means towards change. So for me, my thing is how can we retain a radical analysis, meaning getting to the root, meaning acknowledging these, these are structural issues rather than individual issues, not just accepting the frames and the narratives that our mainstream culture puts on all problems, the silver bullets, solutions oh government is going to change everything or you know and how do we integrate that into all spaces and how do we maintain that analysis without necessarily that meaning an, a sort of all or nothing nothing strategy because so so having worked with a lot of anti-capitalists my main problem with that scene is that it often takes this notion of like well i've studied all this highfalutin political literature and it says that the state is the problem. The state is a capitalist state. The state just wants to improve capitalist's ability to make money. Uh, the state will never be a positive force for a fundamental transformation of society and a dismantling white supremacy and patriarchy and all these things. And I can agree with that analysis without thinking that that means that you should never engage the state or never deal with policy or never deal with commerce as a potential means towards change. I just don't think that Having a radical analysis means you dismiss any action that's short of complete revolution. So that's my personal theory of change. I believe that if we want to make a really functional food movement, we need to think in terms of these different approaches and how they can actually be synergistic rather than be, you know, tearing each other apart based on sort of ideological purity. Um, and I think I want to be clear that goes both ways because I think that I know people who work on policy who are incredibly dismissive of any critique of capitalism who say, oh, well, you're not going to change that. So why even bother having that analysis? We need to deal with the concrete of policy. And I think that's also BS because you're it's a cop out to say that the system is very difficult to change and we don't know exactly how to change it. Therefore, we shouldn't think about it or address it or talk about it, you know, so. My thing is that all people who maintain their personal theories of change that usually fall along this sort of, you know, revolutionary to reformist spectrum need to consider their own theories of change. Like, 
be self-critical about them and be able to actually engage with others who don't share their own theories of change. And, and I think that's historically been the way that movements are most successful because generally to change usually very recalcitrant institutions, you have to have the pressure of a very radical sort, something that says, shit's going to go down. We're going to change the whole system. And then you need the people inside the system in various leverage points of power that say, Ooh, we don't want it to go that far. But if we do this or that reform, then it'll calm it down for a while. And I think that that's how change generally happens. And you need both the reformists who are sort of on the inside and the, the radicals pushing from the outside to, to make that happen more quickly, I think. Well, as you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about the article you wrote about the Berkeley Food Institute when you were mm-hmm. involved in kind of the beginning imaginations of what that um, institution could yeah. be within UC Berkeley, that this common thread with your work is that you're deeply curious, right? And I think that that engaging with these bigger systemic things in this way that is actually authentically curious feels so interesting because it's not explicitly hopeful or full of despair, but it's kind of exists somewhere in between, right? Sometimes it's hopeful, sometimes it's not, but it, it gives people credit where it's due. So yeah. that's a, that seems like something that could last over time. And to me, that seems like part of that is you having so many different hats mm-hmm. that you wear. So you look at your life kind of as, um, we were talking about this before we started recording of all these different parts that make up a whole life. So Mm -hmm. can you describe maybe the story of that and what that means to you? Well, I just want to, in response to your point though, I think is, you know, my email is anti-dogmatist. And I think that curiosity is really tied to that, that since I've, I was a teen, I've had this idea that, no matter what I believed in, I need to make sure that what I believe isn't a dogma, that it's something I'm always curious about. Maybe there's something wrong with what I believe, or maybe there's something not quite right about it. And that's the thing about the working with institutions that I do believe that, you know, generally states are dedicated to accumulation and generally corporations are, don't have our best interests. These are things that I believe, but I will never bring them all the way to the point of being a dogma where I I don't allow for the possibility that something might be different. Right. And so that's, I think that's where that comes from. And then as far as the, the sort of the being, uh, you know, diversity of, of interests um, that really did come from similarly from the sort of DIY uh, upbringing I had as well, first off, I went, I went to an arts high school. So in this arts high school, you know, everyone was bohemian and doing interesting creative things and being weirdos and um and i think that started me on a path where i understood being a native san franciscan as well as someone who was part of that sort of very artistic community um that you could sort of create your own uh personality or not personality your own identity your own ideas of what it what it was okay to be and um and so because I dropped out of high school because I was involved in these punk rock scenes that were really about rejecting the, you know, dominant, uh, narratives of society. I, I figured that I'd never wanted to be someone who had a career. Like I never wanted to be someone whose main form of identity was based on what I did to make money. 
And so I really just focused on pursuing the things I actually cared about and in a sort of, you know, hopeful way, hoping that I would be provided for. And there's a certain level of privilege that enabled that. Um, you know, for example, I mean, I, I left my mom's house when I was 17, but the fact that my mom owned a house or was buying a house in San Francisco rather than renting, that bumped our class status up from solidly working class for my whole childhood to like, okay, now I feel like if all else fails and I don't do well in my life, I can at least move back in with my mom, you know? So there's a certain level of which privilege enabled me to have this approach where I was just, you know what, I'm going to, I love playing music. I love organizing, you know, communities against things we don't like. I like, uh, you know, making zines. I like traveling. I, I, I decided that these are the things that make me happy and they make me part of the world. And so I didn't need to just do one as a career. And so it was from age 16 that I dropped out of high school to 23 or so that I just pursued all these different interests. And that was when towards the tail end of that, I found the food thing as something that I was becoming more and more interested in. And it just it actually, it became a point where I realized you literally can't do everything at once because there's only so much time in the day. So I, I was trying to be a comic book artist and a graffiti artist and a musician and a community organizer. And I have, of course, I had to make some money. So I was working whatever, uh, you know, food service job two to three days a week, the bare minimum to be able to pay my rent. And then I would try to dumpster dive to, you know, get the rest of my food and, uh, luckily at that point in San Francisco, there was still a lot. I would say I had a really solid community in the sense that a lot of things that I would re- need to, to, to survive, I could actually get through my community rather than through needing money. Um, so there was a lot of this, the circumstances that enabled me to focus on what I wanted to be doing rather than the need to earn. And I just earned enough based on whatever job I could get just to sustain the other things. And then the, that point at which I realized that the food and sus- urban sustainability was my real passion for what I wanted to change. And I mean, of course, I was interested in many other topics, but that was something that I came upon as, you know, what I really want to get farther into this. And so to the extent to which I have specialized in anything, it's only because I've discovered a particular uh, enthusiasm within myself to sort of focus a little bit more. And that's what my recent master's student, uh, master's program, um, it was the first time that I've only done two things in my life rather than five different things. And it was because I, A, needed some distance from San Francisco for many reasons, part mostly because of the gentrification and the sort of not knowing whether I still belonged here in a way um, and wanted to get some distance and perspective from that. And then also because I was invited in this program, which was really exciting about linking my work, you know, in the, in, in the global North and in, in the belly of the beast with the work of other people doing food and agricultural work from around the world. And, you know, the program is run by June Boris is a, who's a very, uh, respected activist scholar who combines work as an activist with work as a scholar, which is exactly what I'm interested in doing. How can I actually be someone who doesn't just identify as one thing? Um, and so I feel like it's worked for me. Like I said, it's definitely based on some level of privilege, but I've seen other people 
um, do this as well, not from such positions of privilege. I think it's really fundamentally about um, whether you can just sort of have this faith and decide to follow a path that makes sense to you rather than um, the notions of security or a sort of specialization that our society usually puts on people, especially those who end up going to school. I feel like, you know, for many people, they're specialized because they have to have a job to sustain their family and they simply look for the most, the, the least offensive version out there that they can find. And so, so going to school is one way to achieve that outcome as opposed to going to school to learn about a subject matter that you care about, you know? And, and I think that's why I encourage anybody to drop out of high school, you know, because, because I feel like that was what enabled me to focus on, on pursuing the things I wanted to learn about, which led me to a position where, I happen to be old enough to be self-disciplined in school rather than being like, you know, rejecting all things authoritarian because that was my younger self. Uh, I was able to go to school at that time, which enabled me to get better grades, which enabled me to get these different scholarships. So, so it sort of led to the path where it enabled me to continue doing all these different things. Um, let's, yeah, let's focus back in on San Francisco. Cause that, I feel like yeah. that's a big character. In your story, right? Yeah, so um, in 2005, starting Alamany Farm, there there was this spirit of this DIY culture here that felt it was after the first dot-com bubble had burst. Yeah. And you said, you know, that you had this community that felt like a lot of things, that you could source a lot of things from your community, yeah. right? And I think um, remembering that time that that, probably meant food and a place to stay mm -hmm. and entertainment and healthcare sometimes. And, you know, like yeah, I didn't have marginal quality <laughs> yeah, I didn't um, have health insurance most of the time. But I think there was this moment where these projects started, not just Alamany, but other projects in this town too, um, you know, that called themselves urban farms mm -hmm. instead of gardens. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe, uh, like, what is an urban farm? And why isn't it a garden? And, mm. like, what is that establishing of space or that, like, yeah. occupying of something different? Well, I, th I mean, I definitely think there's a little bit of a only a semantic difference between a farm and a garden. Um, and I think that really it's, it's sort of a, in some ways, it's a narrative device to say that an urban farm exists is to call into question the notion that farming is something that only takes place in a rural landscape. Um, that said, I think that what for, at least in the case of Alamany farm and definitely Hayes Valley farm, that some of these projects and free farm, actually the three main largest farms that existed one, only one of which still remains um, they were all premised on a collective labor model. They were all about bringing people together to grow food together rather than individual plots. And it wasn't a garden because these are places where your, your goal is to grow food, right? A garden, theoretically, a garden sort of in your mind has a function of beauty. It's really sort of a space to be in. And of course, all of these sites played that role. But they were all really focused on food production in various ways, um, which to, to me made them more of a farm because they were really about larger scale for the city, 
uh, production of food. And I think that, you know, it, there, there, it, San Francisco, you're right, plays a big role in my story. But also, if you talk to anyone in San Francisco about urban agriculture who's been involved for a while, you see how much it tells San Francisco itself and its transitions and its connections much wider economically and culturally tell the story of how no farming system operates in a vacuum. Right. We, whether that's urban or rural, like all these systems take place in relationship to things that happen outside the farm and outside the community. And so in, in, in the case of San Francisco, what it tells me, and I've actually been trying to slowly work on a academic article about this, which is that we might have all these ideals about how we want to set up these projects. So for example, Alamini farm really started with this idea of horizontal organization. We were an open group that operated on consensus and we, you know, tried to have participation really drive all of the decisions and, and how the project uh, ran. And it's still theoretically run like that to this day. Um, but who gets to participate, who can participate is framed by the economics of the city itself. And there's simply not the base of people who used to be involved at Alamany Farm now than there was 10 years ago because of the continual gentrification. So even 2005 was already past the first dot-com wave, which did cause lots of displacement, which did cause an increase in the cost of living, you know, and yet even at that time, it's still there was still this solid feeling of this community existed and was here. And many, especially young people who came here because of the image of San Francisco and they wanted to participate in something that was about creating positive social change. Those people just simply cannot even afford to live that sort of lifestyle in the city now. And so what that told me is that you can never do activism um, purely on this sort of with, without an acknowledgement or an awareness of these other factors that happen. We don't, we can't necessarily fully control the forces of gentrification. I think there's a whole other discussion to be had about what can be done, but let's just say it's clear. We can't, you know, stop it once it's happening in some sort of significant sense. So then what does that mean for how we set up these urban projects? Like what are the benefits of them? If they only have a certain lifespan because of gentrification, and what does that mean for places like Oakland, which were, which are on the next level, uh, the next wave of gentrification from San Francisco? And they're, they're, I mean, if you ask anybody, there's as much, if not more, urban food projects focused on food justice. I mean, there's all the history and legacy of the Black Panthers. There's so much going on there. But now, if you were to start an urban farm there, that has very different implications and potentially very negative pro-gentrification implications. Um, and so to me, the San Francisco story really brings up the importance of if you're going to be an urban food activist, being very attentive to those political economic sides of your project, rather than just assuming that, you know, when you grow organic food in a community, it's a positive thing. Absolutely. And I, I think I talk about that time because of this idea of calling it a farm, I think, links it with farmers everywhere else in the mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. and um, positions people as something other than hobbyists. Mm -hmm. And I think symbolizes this creation of an alternative system, right? And I think yeah. there's a lot to unpack in that. There's <laughs> a lot of problems with yeah. that. But I think there is an impetus there that feels important. 
right? That it feels like there is power to control your city mm-hmm. in, in a different way. Um, well, I mean, definitely, definitely I would say that all of these projects are, are at least the large bulk of them that I've been involved with and that other people I know have been involved with are premised on the fact that our society is so de-peasantized that we have less than 1% farmers and most of those farmers are really more like land managers in their rare con- condition tractors, you know, large fields. So part of the, the, the goal or the, the reason for having these spaces is simply to re-peasantize the, the, the society. Even if people aren't becoming actual full-time uh, small-scale farmers, the awareness of what that looks like and what it means to be a farmer, the awareness of the food system a, a, as a whole is just something that needs to be sort of grown from the start. And so it's such a, a fundamental thing to have any political change, to have people be aware of the system that they're trying to change. Um, that's what I think, uh, like so many of these projects, even if they're not creating farmers, they're creating people with farmer awareness um, and calling it a farm and having people participate in that way um, as much as possible to see what the labor really takes also um, is, is is part of that. I think that, yeah, of course, there's, there's problems with sort of equating, you know, urban farm participation with, you know, being you know, someone who has a small piece of land in, in the highlands of Guatemala or something, but at the same time, getting back to our, you know, our conversation about sort of the diversified uh, interests and diversified income streams, that that's something that farmers do a lot of places. A lot of t- places, p- people cannot survive through purely subsistence agriculture. Most peasants are actually growing partly for their own family's subsistence as well as for local markets. And they're usually growing a variety of crops and they might have off-farm work and they might uh, be engaged in different crafts or other uh, forms of income generation. And the same thing holds for us who are trying to create new forms of, uh, of urban existence. We're trying to create new forms of commons where people can participate and put effort into something that's then rewarding to them in a sort of tangible way. Uh, and that's what I think a lot of these projects are. They're, they're urban farm commons. And then we're also trying to figure out our own individual ways of, of, of sustaining our livelihoods. Right. And so, um, I'm hoping that that's something that we're, that we're creating a base for, whether they're, you know, new small businesses that are, that are working on various aspects beyond food, uh, whether they're new collective living enterprises. There's a lot of different things that I think we're doing that are similar in the sense of creating a diversified, uh, base for survival. And let's, let's kind of wrap back around to thinking about voting with your fork versus mm-hmm. other kinds of participation in a food system. So when you describe what these urban farms are, and I think really creating opportunities for people to participate in their food systems as like active participants like you would in democracy yeah. or other systems like that, it's pretty different than shopping at Whole Foods, mm-hmm. for example. How yeah. is that different? And Maybe you can talk a little mm. bit about Occupy the Farm or, or that kind of yeah, I think, connecting things. I think, I mean, and well, I could talk about Occupy the Farm of what I think I would, I would do in relating to my theories of change 
comment earlier is that, you know, so I was involved in, you know, the energy you were talking about in 2005. From 2005 to 2010, there was this explosion of projects in San Francisco dealing with urban ag and food in general. And that was the impetus for me to actually start the San Francisco Urban Agriculture Alliance because there was so much of this energy and I wanted to make sure that it was it was utilized to its best extent and in a cooperative fashion you know you could have multiple nonprofits all trying to do the same thing and then fighting for the same funds and it's the usual situation so i thought it was beneficial to have people come together on that level so these were all even themselves possibly collective projects like alimony farm that had their own organizational structures and then they were sort of scaling up into this urban agriculture alliance which ended up working on policy that wasn't necessarily our initial vision um but the point being that there's a various forms of collective action that can make change. So SFUAA ended up being large, largely about policy because we found opportunities to change policy that was good for urban agriculture um, in San Francisco and then also on the state level. But then I also was involved in Occupy the Farm, which although it was organized initially in a sort of clandestine fashion because it was an illegal occupation of a, of a, a piece of land – uh, was really similarly premised on participation drives it and the openness to people being involved and trying to engage people on this site. And in that case, you know, that the community of Albany, where the site is located, had been trying to access the site to turn it into a, a community farm for 15 years. And so the occupation was what enabled a lot of residents from the area who were excited about that vision to live that vision in the moment, not even having waited for permission or after 15 years of pushing the university to try to acknowledge this, that never worked. And so instead, occupation allowed this experience of, wow, this is what it would look like if this was an educational, agroecological urban farm. And I think that to some degree, all of these forms of collect collective action are the same thing, where when you get to the point where you are seeing something in action, when you're seeing people working together in action, when you're seeing that what the farm looks like, when you're seeing that it's possible to make change uh, as communities in a way that as individuals we can't, it just opens up the imagination and inspires people to continue that. Um, of course, there's going to be times where things go bad, you know, collective projects where there's dysfunction within the group or, you know, political battles where you lose again and again. I mean, of course, there's nuance to this. It's not all some great thing that always results in what you want. But I think that that's where, that's where, to me, all of these theories of change can be combined. You can have a worker-owned cooperative green enterprise of some sort that is operating on a sort of commercial model, but it's still premised on people working together in a way that is uh, soul-fulfilling and actually, you know, socially uh, respectful, mutually respectful, the same way you can have a direct action group that's all about, you know, subverting the, the private property regime and instilling these new values of agrarian citizenship on public land, like Occupy the Farm. And the same way you can have a group of people who get together to affect policy that affects us all. You know, it, you don't need to have only one theory of change as long as that sort of fundamental experience is one of people experiencing their collective power and learning how to use that better and better. Well, so let's finish up by talking about uh, your hopes. Mm -hmm. And it's a particularly poignant moment as it has been in this city and this region. Um, 
what do you imagine, you know, for your city and for mm. this region in terms of ongoing yeah. food projects mm. and what food sovereignty maybe looks like here over time? That's a tough one. <laughs> it's a tough one for me because I've, out of all of the things that I think about, the one that I've had the least hope for is this city specifically. Um, I don't see much of a future for the image that San Francisco has had as a place for alternatives, for counterculture, for people who don't belong, for ideas that don't belong. I don't know how much longer San Francisco is really going to authentically uh, represent that, or if it even does at this moment. I still think that there's an importance to that work being done here because there is this sort of platform that San Francisco still has and its influence around the world. So I do still think it's important, but I don't know if I personally have hope that San Francisco will ever be the same again. Um, that said, I don't think that our belief in the ability that the, the possibility of change is linked to a single location, right? Where we are working at systems which go into all spaces and can be affected by all spaces. You know, there's no structure which is located somewhere that you can target and that affects everywhere else, but doesn't have a reverse effect, right? We, we can have effects as individuals and as communities from wherever we are. And so I have a lot of hope in terms of, um, the Bay Area as a whole, because there is such a legacy of uh, politicized engagement with the food system. So I think that what's going on right now in Oakland, even though they're dealing with a lot of the same challenges of gentrification, is very inspiring because there's new models being created, which are really grounded in, 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 well, what I, what's hopeful to me is, anti-capitalism combined with a sort of pragmatic approach to how you can make change organizationally and create new institutions, uh, as well as, you know, linking it with these other, um, you know, they always call axes of oppression. You know, there's class-based oppression, there's race-based oppression, there's gender, there's so many things going on. And I feel like the confluence of factors has made it so that certain projects I, I would name planting justice is one of my favorites because they've been able to, figure out a way to incorporate all of these critical components into their work as a food justice organization um, and really approach push push food justice even work into the food sovereignty direction meaning really more directly dealing with issues of power rather than just sort of you know food security issues just uh, access issues and so that's what's inspiring to me is that there's new organizational models and new hope in these hybridized forms where you could be a green entrepreneurship sort of project that still has a component that's really, really about radical critique and working with the most, most marginalized communities around. So that to me on the, the urban side is really, really inspiring. Um, and then I think on a global level, the fact that La Via Campesina has had various successes at the international, supranational level of policymaking where the influence of the poorest, most marginalized people of the world, which are, you know, small scale food producers, their voices are being ever more impossible to ignore. 
and and that their their influence has now reversed into the belly of the beast where people like myself and other activists who are working from very consumer sort of perspectives or very urban perspectives we're seeing the connections between our struggles for food sovereignty and theirs and i think that there's very much an incipient um there i don't know what the campaign is exactly but i know that there's a, a mindset or an approach or a, an, an understanding of a growing internationalism among the food food movement, which I think that would be the best thing that we could get to is an acknowledgement that we can't this whole localization, local foods, all that stuff is great and one part of the solution. But without a globalized movement, without a movement that's aware of its global uh, connections and implications and who was not working on that level, um, we're not going to have that really transformative sort of impact that we're looking for. And so that's the thing that's, I think, most hopeful to me is how much more that's, uh, that's coming up. That localism is starting to be questioned because we're starting to say, actually, it's not about just local food systems. It's about how do we change the global capitalist industrial food system and the policy structures um, that are enabling and supporting and continuing those. So what's next for you, Antonio? Well, I'm going to continue teaching with the Urban Permaculture Institute here in San Francisco, um, which has been really fun and exciting. And then I'm also starting, hopefully in the new year, a new project with the Permaculture Guild that's an urban carbon farming project funded by the uh, San Francisco Department of the Environment. So that involves... Basically, we're going to be applying compost to a few urban farms and testing to see whether that compost application leads to greater carbon sequestration. And if so, it will leverage further funds in future years from the Department of the Environment uh, to go to urban ag sites to add compost, which seems like a good thing. Um, I'm also working on a couple other potential small projects involving a rooftop urban farm in Oakland, which will be doing seed production and um, some other writing projects about Occupy the Farm and about different scales of food movement activism, uh, you know, doing the usual. I might even eventually get around to writing a whole suite of songs for an album about my newborn son. We'll see. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com.